Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is From Intern to CEO, How an Accidental Entrepreneur Built a $50 Billion RIA Empire. It's a conversation with Adam Bierenbaum, CEO of Buckingham Wealth Partners and Lewis Diamond. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. It was 2010 when then chief executive and co-founder of Buckingham Wealth Partners, Bert Schweitzer, announced the succession plan for the RIA firm, which was managing some $12 billion in assets at the time and just pushing past the height of the financial crisis. So the selection of a successor was an important one for the future of Buckingham, someone who had exactly what was needed to lead the next generation of the firm. That someone turned out to be Adam Bierenbaum. But Adam wasn't initially what many would have considered the most likely candidate for the role. He had no experience in the wealth management space whatsoever. In fact, he had his sights set on becoming Jerry Maguire, a master dealmaker for sports icons. Yet the St. Louis University law student joined Buckingham in 2002 as an unpaid summer intern and became a full-time employee upon graduation in 2005. Over the five years before becoming CEO, he rose through the ranks at the firm, from compliance manager to chief compliance officer, and then on to general counsel. With nearly two decades at Buckingham, Adam was there to experience the firm's dramatic rise, which can be attributed to smart business decisions and a strategic inorganic growth path. One such decision, taking on an investment from Focus Financial Partners in 2007, helped the firm to supercharge its M&A efforts, as Adam shared in a recent CityWire article. But that decision had far more benefit than the capital infusion. He also indicates that Focus plays a significant role in due diligence and deal structure. In 2018, They merged with turnkey asset management platform, or TAMP, Loring Ward, in a deal worth $235 million, and that now accounts for over $30 billion in assets under the Buckingham Strategic Partners umbrella. During Adam's tenure with Buckingham, they've closed over 40 M&A deals, bringing their total in assets to over $50 billion. And Buckingham made headlines again in March of 2020 at the onset of the pandemic when industry powerhouse Michael Kitsis of Pinnacle Advisory Group and Jeffrey Levine of Blueprint Wealth Alliance joined the firm. Today, Buckingham is the destination for top advisors and teams and one of the stars of Focus Financial's portfolio, something Adam credits to the firm's ability to their obsession with helping independent advisors design, build, and protect financial lives. 
There's no doubt that you can learn a lot from this conversation between Adam and Lewis. Adam shares how his unique combination of drive and passion for the business is only compounded by his vision for growth and how having the right team can make all the difference in the success of a firm. So let's listen in. Adam, really excited for you to join us today. Thank you so much. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for including me. I really do appreciate it. Excellent. So let's start off in customary format. Tell us a bit about your background since I'm doing some research on you. It looks like you took a bit of an unorthodox route to get into the industry. Yeah, so I definitely have a little bit different of a background. I certainly graduated college, like most professionals, and right out of college, I actually went straight into kind of some valuation slash investment banking type work, but specifically within the energy industry down in Houston. And it was an incredible experience. And as many folks may remember, these were the heydays of Enron. Dynagy and and energy was hot and exciting. And I learned a lot. And I also learned that at the end of the day, a lot of that was just financial engineering. So I did what most people, I think, struggle to do at, at critical moments like this. I had an epiphany and I walked away. I realized I didn't want to get stuck. I didn't want to get caught up uh, in the energy and the excitement and the dollars. And I was really not creating value. And I didn't ultimately know what I wanted to do, but I knew a change was needed. And so I left that profession. I left that industry. I left that excitement. And not knowing what I wanted to do, I I did what a lot of folks do actually do, and that's go back to school. So I went to law school. So I am a lawyer. Don't hold that against me. And that really kind of brings my journey to Buckingham, which is right out of law school. And actually, even during law school, I found my home there and have never looked back. And what did the drew to Buckingham in the first place? Because obviously, being in law school, you could have worked for a white shoe law firm or really had your pick of the litter. So what drew you to the RIA space in the first place into a firm like Buckingham? Sure. I thought going into law school was actually, I was going to be Jerry Maguire, right? I have this love of sports. I thought the energy and excitement of being an agent, but also helping folks was a pretty powerful combination. And so, so that was how I went into law school thinking about things. The reality is that, that my story of what actually drew me to Buckingham is a little bit of a strange one, which is I actually read a book by one of the early folks at Buckingham, Larry Swedro. He was the only guy to a winning investment strategy you'll ever uh, need. And, and it was probably the second epiphany that I had in my professional life. The first one being that I didn't want to get caught on this hamster wheel of investment banking and valuation work that I was on. And the second one was that this small little firm in St. Louis had a different way of looking at the world, had a different way of servicing clients. And it really attracted me to them. And so I was very fortunate. My father was a high school classmate and friend of one of the founders. And so he was able to arrange a conversation. And, and I joined as, uh, as an unpaid intern back in 2003 while still in law school. So that was really the, the, the early days of Buckingham. But what really, really did draw me to the firm itself was certainly this different way of looking at how to serve clients. But when I expressed that these were just some of the best human beings 
in an industry that I thought was a sales industry, doing comprehensive planning work and really packaging an entire holistic, comprehensive client experience together. And remember, I mean, this was 17 years ago. The industry has certainly evolved since then. I just was so attracted to who they were as people and who they were as practitioners. And I wanted to be a part of it and just wanted to get my foot in the door. Well, clearly it had to have been one of the better decisions you've made in your life. <laughs> I would say it's uh, it's certainly worked out well. And I thank goodness every day that I found them. It's been one of the great blessings in my life. I'm sure they would say the same about you. So let's fast forward to today. Buckingham is a absolute powerhouse in the industry in terms of assets, dominating news headlines, M&A, et cetera. Can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of Buckingham in terms of assets, number of employees, and overall, what's the value proposition? Yeah, absolutely. So it's actually sometimes fun to go backward to then kind of fast forward here. And what I would share is actually when I joined the firm, Buckingham was really comprised and and still is today of two primary businesses. One is a traditional wealth management firm established as an RIA. And the second business, a lot of folks refer to as a TAMP, a turnkey asset management provider. But even back then, that side of our business was really more of a comprehensive advisor platform. So we effectively are a full outsourced solution to other independent firms that want to be independent firms and believe like us and practice like us. So one of the sides, our traditional wealth management firm that is our employee model is Buckingham Strategic Wealth. And the comprehensive advisor platform is Buckingham Strategic Partners. Now in aggregate, this is, I guess, a financial services organization, well over 50 billion of collective assets. Wherever markets are at right now, it's actually north of uh, $55 billion of collective assets. And that's really broken down to $20 billion or so on the Buckingham Strategic Wealth side, so our traditional wealth management firm, and uh, $35 billion or so on the uh, comprehensive advisor platform, Buckingham Strategic Partners. And the way I would think about kind of the overall value proposition is whether you are at Buckingham Strategic Wealth or you are an independent advisor utilizing Buckingham Strategic Partners, we really are obsessed with helping independent advisors design, build, and protect financial lives. There's a myriad of solutions as to how you get access to that platform, that expertise, those tools, those solutions. But at the end of the day, I think that's what we really are obsessed with, which is helping advisors to ultimately do that for their end clients. And many folks know us in large part because of our evidence-based investment and now planning philosophy. So on the investment side, we have a very strict discipline as as it relates to how we think markets work and how we think we should invest. And then increasingly over the years, we've built out an incredibly comprehensive planning platform and really have an evidence-based view of how that should be practiced in our industry. And certainly, I guess, you know, most folks know the headlines of Michael Kitsis and Jeffrey Levine joining us recently, but 
it really started out with our founders back in the mid 90s who were practicing CPAs and just truly believed that deep, comprehensive, holistic planning was what really moved the needle as it relates to adding value to clients' lives. Absolutely. And to bring up the word unexpected again, you became really an unexpected CEO, as I've heard you describe it, when you were 31 years old. And most advisors that run RAs these days, especially many of our audience, they might become unexpected CEOs, but more just because they're running their own wealth management team. And ultimately, to gain independence, they become the CEO. So kind of by default, you with your legal background, not being an advisor initially, join the firm at a law school as an intern, and then pretty quickly become CEO. Can you explain a little bit what that experience was like? Was that a goal of yours all along? And what was it like the day they told you, Adam, you're now the CEO? <laughs> so it's actually a fun story. I'll start with the very last question and I'll go backward, which is first, and an absolutely incredible honor, right? When some of the best human beings and best practitioners you've ever met ask you to lead their organization and progress it forward, and at the same time, trust you to respect the values, respect the traditions, respect the legacy of what they've built. I can't think of a more awesome professional and personal honor. So I want to say that, but I've got this funny story. The day that it was actually announced at our organization that I was going to be the CEO, I was a new father, my oldest, who's now who's now approaching 13. And I remember having the greatest professional day I can remember. Lots of compliments, lots of excitement about the future, lots of ideas that people throw in. And I went home and I walk in my door and my amazing wife is there to greet me. And she's holding our baby. And she looks at me and she says, Adam, I am so proud of you. I love you, honey, but your daughter needs you. And you may, may now be the boss at work, but I'm a boss at home. And so go change your diaper. <laughs> she needs a bath. It's your turn. And I will always remember that moment. It actually gives me great balance in my life, but, uh, but it's just kind of funny about the actual day. It was all publicly shared. But um, you asked a really interesting question, which was, was this a goal of mine? And most folks will share with you, no, of course, you never set out to do this, but I'll admit it was. I fell in love with this organization. I fell in love with these people. I fell in love with what I thought we could do for the industry, for our clients, for advisors. And when you have that love, when you have that passion for something, I hope that you also match it with a willingness and a commitment to lead. And so did I want this? Absolutely. But it was based on all of that love I had for what this organization really was at the time. And did I ever think we were going to go from 500 million of assets at BSW to 20 billion in a little over a decade later? No. Did I think that we would be talking about numbers in aggregate of 55 to $60 billion of collective assets? Of course not. But it's really interesting. My colleague, Justin Ferry, has a phrase, and he said, it is amazing when you put together people of the highest level of competence and character, what can actually be achieved. 
And I think that we're kind of a testament to that, which is we've assembled a leadership team and we've assembled this amazing team of advisors on both sides of our business and just overall associate base that's highly competent and of the highest character. And we're having fun building what I like to think of as a sustainable organization that isn't just personality of a leader, but a true enterprise. And my friend, Michael Nathans, who leads the Colony Group, speaks about this concept a lot. And I'm, I'm a big believer in it, which is there are a few independent RIAs that are emerging as enterprises. And, you know, we want to be one of those. So that's what I'd share. Thank you for sharing that. And what an amazing day. You have your first child and become CEO. It's quite a change from the day before. Yeah, it was an interesting time. And the other funny thing is about it is, you know, remember what's going on in the world around us. It was the global financial crisis. So at the same time, as I was beginning to really take over much of the day-to-day leadership, we were certainly dealing with a bunch of fun stuff in the core business itself. But this was also one of the really, really cool things about this. When my founding generation turned over the reins, they didn't exit stage left. Now, at the same time, they didn't stay and look over their, you know, your shoulder. They truly did turn over the reins, but they stayed in a capacity of mentorship, of counsel, of support, of advocacy. And I know that that's rare in such kind of transitions. They wanted this. They had the foresight to realize that to take the organization to a different level, to deal with some of the issues and challenges that their success had actually created in terms of what it would take to run a business, it might take a different generation and a different style of leadership to move us forward from there. So I give them an incredible amount of credit. You know, transitions are not easy and they stayed well informed, but not involved particularly from a day-to-day perspective, but they were there to support. They were there to counsel. They were there to advise. And I was blessed that they were also there to advocate. At what point do you feel the business really hit a turning point from when it was more of a, of a practice that I'm sure provided a very nice living to you, your leadership team, and your employees, and obviously you can serve your clients well, to use your word, more of an enterprise. What point did gasoline really get poured on the fire? And did Buckingham in its current form really start to take shape? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's probably a couple series of defining moments. And I think one of them was actually even pre me becoming the leader of the organization. I was one of the first truly specialized resources. And when a company begins to hire and focus specialized resources on stuff, I think they advance farther, right? So again, much credit to our founding generation of leaders who started to invest in the business in specialized ways. No longer do people, you know, were they jacks of all trades, masters of none, right? We hired somebody who was specifically dedicated to human resources and spent all of their time obsessed with culture, with development, with hiring and training the best people we could and retaining the best people that we could. We did the same thing on the technology and the operations side instead of what a lot of practices are, which is advisors serving in all these roles. 
So that specialization was a critically defining moment. I'd say a second critically defining moment was our transaction with Focus Financial Partners. So a lot of folks do M&A or do transactions as a liquidity event, or they do it as to solve a particular issue. The way I always like to frame our transaction with Focus was we always knew that if we were successful, we were going to have a partner. And so we wanted to find the best partner to align with where we would sell to grow, where we could chart a new, more exciting, more dynamic path forward. A second defining moment for us beyond just the specialization of resources was our transaction with Focus because that gave us the capital partner and that cemented our trajectory to grow as we have grown since that transaction occurred in 2007. And then, you know, I think that there have been some other defining moments, certainly our first entree into M&A on the Buckingham Strategic Wealth side. My, uh, my dear friends, Herb Rothenberg and, and Thalia Wade and, and Brent Thomas were our first transaction back in 2010. That was a big milestone moment for us. And then there's certainly the, the, the milestone moment, the Loring Ward transaction on the uh, Buckingham Strategic Partner side. And then I also expressed that we have brought on some amazing talent acquisitions over the years. So be it our chief client officer, Dave Levin, be it our chief operating officer, Justin Ferry, be it our general counsel, Sal Papa, or names that the industry knows like Michael Kitsis and Jeffrey Levine and others, along with a great host of just exceptional advisors that have joined us. So all of those, I think, add up to be those kinds of turning points that just continue the momentum and trajectory of of what we're trying to become. Absolutely. And I'd like to talk about focus for a little bit. You're probably one of their first transactions back in 2007. And everyone knows focus now is the leading private investor in the RA industry. So I'm curious, aside from them being a capital partner, what else is it that they have enabled you to do? And now, 13 plus years from that transaction, how do you interface with Focus today? Yeah, great question. So it's probably really important to go back to what we saw in them in 2006 before we did our transaction in 2007. First of all, and, and again, I am not someone that actually trashes other models. Um, I actually think the variety of models that are in our industry and the variety of solutions more than ever before is fantastic. And we can certainly talk about that. But the reality is focus came to us with a set of criteria and a way of operating that really, really made sense for who we were and what we wanted to become. Their mantra that they don't turn entrepreneurs into employees, that was vital to us. We have a belief system in how we invest and how we ultimately serve clients. And so the reality is that we did not want to ever join forces with a partner that would have impact or influence on that. The second thing was we wanted folks that did not make us change uniforms, as I heard a friend of mine use the phrase. We wanted to build Buckingham. 
we didn't want to build someone else's brand. And we had a vision for that, what that was going to be. And so practically speaking, we wanted a partner that liked that vision and wanted to support it. And then finally, what I would express is, I don't think people should underestimate the impact of being a capital partner that provides those other things, that independence, that not requiring you to change your, your uniform, so to speak, that support of your vision and strategy, and merging that, of course, with being a capital partner. We have been, I think, a, a, a very successful acquirer of quality firms since 2010 when we first entered into it. And we're certainly more selective than we've ever been, but they've supercharged that. They have been the WD-40 along the tracks that have made that work. And, and it's not just capital. It was strategy. It was approach. It was the legal and regulatory stuff. It was teaching us how to do this well and supporting us through all the different dimensions. And that has been as strong a growth area for us as anything. So, so I don't make light of that. Now, Focus also does have a myriad of other solutions and resources that their partnership can take advantage of. So whether that's lending or cash management solutions, whether that is some marketing support, whether it is counsel on, you know, on certain topics or what have you, being Buckingham size, we don't need quite as much of that as we needed back in 2007, but certainly firms that, that haven't reached the scale or size of Buckingham, but aspire to do that, they need that support along the way. And I think to have it there as an option is pretty amazing. So um, I hope that's helpful to kind of explain kind of the, the rationale behind, you know, the transaction and how they supported us along the way and how they continue to support us. I think it's it's incredibly helpful and, and to get that perspective too, because there's a lot of firms that can write a check. There's an abundance of private equity firms, investors, and everyone and their mother trying to get their hand in the wealth management industry through an investment. But I think the critical piece that you hit on is, aside from just getting the capital, what else are they going to do for you? And it, it seems like you were both extremely complementary to each other's growth and that focus enabled you to complete all the transactions that you have and probably get to scale faster than you would have on your own. And even if you hadn't taken on their investment, you would probably look back upon this and say, it was a really good deal for both of us because you wouldn't have been able to grow Buckingham into the $50 billion plus entity without their assistance. At the same time too, Buckingham is absolutely the one of the major success stories that Focus can point to for how they've helped um, scale and grow RIAs through M&A and through tuck-in acquisitions. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And it is amazing in life when there can be win-win cooperatives. And I think that that is this is a perfect example of how it's worked out well in that respect for all parties involved. I cannot imagine having taken a different route. And I think that's the thing is that and again, I give so much credit to our founding generation which is to have a vision and a recognition that we were going to have a partner. And, and that's the thing that I think that our industry does have to actually come to grips with, which is there comes a point where the founding generation of an organization either needs to invest significantly back in the business and take incredible profits off the table to advance forward, or you can align, you can join forces, 
And in so doing, you can literally supercharge your client experience, your business, your growth trajectory forward 10 years. It's truly like almost a time warp of advancement. And that's what we chose to do. We didn't have a mindset of selling to go away. We didn't have a mindset of transacting to extract some high multiple that was being paid at the time or what have you. It was really about alignment with a partner that could help us to achieve a bigger long-term vision. And, you know, it's kind of neat when you can look back and say, eh, that worked. So very briefly, advisors think about taking on private equity into their firms pretty often because they're solicited frequently by firms that would love to invest in them. But there's also a lot of negative perceptions about private equity, that it's inpatient capital, you're selling your upside, et cetera. So I know Focus's model is different where they're, they're permanent capital versus more temporary or fleeting. But what would be your guidance to either an advisor who's looking for a potential capital partner or for an RIA firm that's at that point where they're looking to partner um, with another firm? How would you counsel them to look at a transaction? Yeah, first, what I would say is that the variety of choice today, as I mentioned earlier, is amazing. This just didn't exist. And it's a testament to our industry, right? It's a testament to everyone who's listening right now. You're running awesome businesses with incredible client retention, with fantastic long-term historical growth rates, and with a lot of demographic trends that are operating in our favor. So there's a lot of folks that want to be in this space, and it's created an incredible variety of models. So enjoy that. Take advantage of that. Be appreciative of that. Now, with choice can come confusion, right? So my counsel is this, which is don't offhand dismiss any solution. Take your time, just as you would counsel your clients to do deep discovery, or just like you do for clients, do deep discovery of their circumstances, of what they may need, of what their goals are, all of those kinds of things to ultimately develop a plan. As an advisor, you should go through the exact same process as you would counsel your clients through or as you actually deliver from an experiential standpoint to them. Take your time. Don't rush. If someone is trying to move fast with you from a transaction standpoint, and there is not some burning platform reason why you need to do that, you have the benefit of time. And so explore, discover, figure out all the different pros and cons of, of these people. But at the end of the day, make sure you understand what you're looking to achieve. There's a lot of folks that will offer you low prices, but may have the best upside or may have the best cultural alignment. And then there may be people that offer you really high prices. But at the end of the day, like that may be your only bite of the apple and you may not get the upside of the growth of that organization or being a shareholder or what have you. And there may not be cultural alignment and you may choose to retire sooner rather than later. And there's everything in between. And so I don't personally think that price alone should be the determinant of who you transact with, although it is no doubt a critical factor and people must pay fair market value for a business. But again, my best advice is take time, appreciate the optionality, appreciate the th that's out there right now, learn the models and talk to people that have been through it before. 
Talk to your friends about why they chose one model versus another, the pros and cons. Be a student of our industry. And you asked specifically about private equity. Here's the great thing about private equity. It's usually smart money. So that's why I'm pretty excited about it being in our industry, which is, again, it's a testament to what we're building and what we're creating, the value and the opportunities that people see ahead. Now, you are correct that it's often shorter term, but who knows? Maybe that timeline aligns for people and maybe that's okay. But it's also often a supercharging kind of an influence as it relates to they like to throw money at things, especially when they see these great trends. So if you want to go crazy as it relates to M&A and you want to do that in a very short period of time, guess what? Private equity is going to help fuel that. But you have to learn to do it right and you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to want to be careful not to blow up your business. But you'll at least have the, the, the dry powder to do that now. Again, everybody knows we chose focus for a reason. Uh, hopefully, I was able to share a little bit about, about that and make it clear why it worked for us. I just particularly like their model relative to what else I've seen, but that doesn't mean that the others are not worth listening to. And I'm always an advocate of, of deep, deep discovery. Absolutely. That is exactly our approach, too. It's that there's an abundance of options. The more important thing is to first get clear on your goals. What is it you're trying to accomplish and why? And how important is it for you to get to that point? And once you have a clear inventory of your own goals, it's understanding what are the different types of options? How does a roll-up compare to a more of a local merger versus a private equity investor, et cetera? So I think that's, that's the exact right guidance. It's a nice segue into the next topic, which is more specifically about Buckingham's ridiculously prolific M&A resume, completing over 40 transactions since 2010. You bought Loring Ward, which you mentioned before, for close to $235 million. Can you explain a little bit about your M&A approach and what is it that's really made it so successful? Yeah, absolutely. So I once heard a great leader do a presentation. His name's Bob Chapman. He runs Barry Waymiller. If he's, he's written books, he does a lot of speaking if you haven't heard him talk. And he really is the one that clarified how powerful an organization that grew organically and inorganically could be in building itself out in incredible ways and producing incredible opportunities for its people. So I kind of came, became obsessed with that, right? I said, Hey, we're already this healthy, organic growing business. And our founding generation has done a really solid job of that. If we could merge this, the bigger we get and the harder it is to grow, you know, the same percentages, it's the law of large numbers. If we could merge that with a healthy inorganic growth strategy, and at the same time, solve problems, wow, that would be amazing. The ability for us to reinvest in our business, the career paths that we would create for folks, the way we could ultimately build out our client experience and our advisor experience, like that's the kind of excitement I'd like to be around. It's the kind of growth engine and organization that I want to be a part of. So, so that's really what triggered for me why I wanted to do it. And transparently, focus has always been an advocate of this. They had the same mindset, which is 
the demographics ahead, the opportunity for them to teach us and provide capital and walk us through this stuff. It just could be this incredibly powerful combination. Now, since then, I've learned a lot. I've learned that it's not just a really cool growth and financial effort. It's an incredible talent acquisition opportunity, right? One of our industry's biggest challenges is finding incredible talent, right? Next generation advisors, of, you know, among a host of other solutions. Well, if it takes a really long time to develop them in-house and it's really hard to find them when you're looking for roles, transactions are an incredible way to bring them into your organization in pretty efficient ways. So that's one. The other thing that I learned was transactions really help as you have a growing geographic footprint as it relates to your clients, help you to have more local access to clients, which I do still believe even in today's modern age where we're all on Zoom and we all use our cell phones and we can travel. I think being local matters. I think I really do. So the more local we could be for our clients, the better. And so M&A helped us do that from a geographic standpoint. And then the third thing that I discovered was M&A also brings capabilities to your organization. So there's a lot of folks that, you know, kind of think they've solved all the world's problems and their client experience their technology stack, all of these things are the best there is. I try to take a more humble approach to it and realize we need to keep advancing and improving every single day. We owe it to our advisors, we owe it to our clients, and that we have not solved for anything. And so the thing that we have seen firsthand is how M&A brings not just talent, not just geography, but also capabilities to your organization. So whether that is a client offering, whether that is a client experience type item, whether that is thought leadership, whether that is more efficient ways to run operations, this isn't a one-way street. It is one that is, you know, hopefully uh, continues to be uh, mutual. And so we learn so much every transaction we do I think that we hopefully can bring something to the table for our transaction partners because I sure as heck know that they bring something for us. Now, you asked the question about how did we get into this and why did we, you know, we had success doing almost 40 transactions. Well, we don't do M&A for the sake of growth. We do it for all of those reasons. And so every year we set out to achieve certain goals. And some of them are growth related, but a lot of them are client experience and talent acquisition related. And so our M&A strategy, our transaction strategy helps us to meet that. So we have a huge amount of folks in our organization that are focused on helping us to execute on that. And so we've just done a really good job of hopefully being a destination for like-minded advisors that want to practice in a place that they want to make sure that their that their clients are taken care of, that their people are taken care of, and that you know, hopefully, they as the owners and the shareholders and the leaders of their of their previous firms feel that they're taken care of as well. And so, it's not rocket science, but I think that oftentimes strategy is pretty easy, but it's execution that's the challenge. And I think we've we've done a good job of executing. 
Absolutely. And what's what I think is pretty remarkable is the firm was around for many years and you're even a focus partner for almost three years before you even did your first deal. So it's it sounded like you needed for things to be firing on all cylinders for the organic growth side, for your leadership team side to be to be really ready for prime time. And I think that's it's a really good learning experience for many because Oftentimes, folks get approached with deals or they hear about a firm that might be for sale. And even if their house isn't quite in order, they may just jump out the opportunity because it makes financial sense. So I applaud the the patience you took. And clearly, it was a strategy that that paid off because you're only as good as your last transaction. And if you bungled the first or second one or the integration didn't go well, there's not a chance you would have had an opportunity to complete so many over the years. Oh, thanks, Lewis. I appreciate that. And I think that's actually incredibly wise observation, which is if I were to counsel others, I would say kiss a lot of frogs and make sure that before you do your first transaction, it's not just there, it's the right one, that it brings something to your organization that makes you better. I, cheesy, I know, but I always say like one plus one has to equal three when you're joining forces. And if you don't see that, and it's really only a financial transaction, you're not ready, or it's not the right first transaction. And also, I would say, you've got to make sure you have the focus, the time, the dedicated resources to execute a transaction superbly. It's not just getting to closing. It's the onboarding and integration that needs to happen. It's the ongoing communication and counsel and making these people feel held as they join your organization and that you actually extract out of the joining of forces what you set out to to do. And that really can't be done part-time. It has to be a full focus. So if you don't have dedicated resources that are going to spend all their time doing that, it's not impossible, but it's certainly going to be pretty hard to do it right. How would you then counsel an advisor who is either considering going independent for the first time with the goal of acquiring firms, or even someone who's been independent their whole career, um, how do they get started? Is it really just just making sure your house is in order and then saying, okay, let's go? Or what would be a couple of actionable items that you would offer someone who's looking to be the next Buckingham or even just not even be the next Buckingham, but do a couple of transactions themselves? Yeah. So first off, you know, beyond just the dedicated resources and time and focus, what I would say is digest things in chunks. Don't come out of the gate trying to hit home runs. You want to end up on first base with your first transaction. It doesn't need to be the game changer for you. It doesn't need to cement your career or change your life. You need to find one with somebody that you can trust that is there to work collaboratively with you, that you share, I've used this phrase earlier, but like where there's shared alignment. So, because things are going to go wrong, it is not going to be a smooth process. And you need that first one to be a learning experience with somebody who understands that that's how it is going to play out and you are going to have to work together. But the end goal of you all joining forces is one that you're both excited about and will work to. So find one with somebody who has that mentality and that mindset of working with you like that 
and have it be of a size and a scale that it cannot blow up your organization. I was so fortunate. I mentioned her earlier, but uh, Thalia Wade really was my partner on that first transaction. And while I can talk about having all these dedicated resources and departments that focus exclusively on helping people join forces with us, back in 2010, it was me being 100% focused on it and working with Thalia, who was focused on this as well, to put this together. And I can't tell you the countless conversations, nights, you know, weekends, calls, what have you, to figure out the most minute of details. And out of that came our first checklist, right? It came our first manual of if we did this again, these are the things we learned. These are the processes that we figured out. This is how we're going to do it. And every time we do a transaction, we keep improving that checklist. And now we have a 1400 line checklist of items that in every single area you could think of that ends up being our guide as it relates to doing this. And Buckingham, even with all that experience, even with all those resources, we still don't do it perfectly, which tells you how tough this is. And it tells you that when you're doing something with other human beings, it's going to be emotional and it's going to be fraught with challenge. So again, my best guidance is make sure you are almost solely focused on doing this and you have that those resources as well. And to make sure that that first transaction you do is with somebody who understands this as well and is truly willing to work with you collaboratively to make it a success. That's great. So start off slow. So it sounds like you walk before you run and you have to make absolutely certain that the first deal is the absolute right one. And it's much better to get the first one right and to make a mistake out of the gate. Let me ask you, so without sharing names or anything identifying, you mentioned that each time you do a deal, it's a learning experience. So I'm wondering, what are some red flags that you've learned actually will be a problem down the road? So of course, there's issues around culture, but but what are some things that maybe you missed the first couple of deals or even just in hindsight that you would caution others to, to look for when they're evaluating a firm to acquire or merge with? Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, obviously culture. Culture isn't just, can you have a beer with somebody and do you like them, right? It's really, do you have shared values, right? Do you put clients first? Are you willing to sacrifice your own ego for the betterment of the team? Are you focused on the financial elements of something or are you focused on a bigger picture vision? What level of work ethic do you have? You know, standards, all that stuff. I would tell you that lessons are, are you have to date people before you get married. You have to, everybody is on their best behavior, right? Um, when you're sitting in a conference room and you're talking numbers. The real question is, is how do you actually take the time to get to know these people that are going to be your partners? And if this is just a financial transaction and you plan to move on in a few years, maybe it doesn't matter. But the way we do these things is like the people that we are transacting with, they're going to be your business partners. You're going to be cutting them a check and then never talking to them again. You know, this isn't a factory or these aren't widgets. So my view is, and lessons learned are, you have to take the time to get to know people. And to go deeper than are they enjoyable to talk with? 
and figure out if you really do have alignment. And then the other things I would say that we learned are that there are no details that are too small to get into, to make sure that before you lock things in, um, that you are settled, that, that, that you can never over-communicate. So perfect examples are we now walk people through the entirety of our quarterly report process in advance of letting them ever sign a letter of intent. And it may seem like such a small thing, but guess what? An advisor has controlled their quarterly report process for decades and they do it a certain way and they need to see how you do it, right? Because if you ultimately don't have alignment on something as small as that, then the reality is I can tell you that there's a lot of other things that that go bump in the night on a day-to-day basis that are going to create blowups and stuff. So we try to take the most minute of details and make sure that we over-communicate, that we share, that we ensure that there aren't critical issues. Because after you close, you are married and divorce is really, really messy. And so ultimately, I would really encourage folks to, again, and a lot of this is related to speed and taking time and doing things right. But whether it's culture, whether it's operations, whether it's client experience, just take what may seem like crazy amounts of time to dig into that stuff in advance to make sure that once you join forces, you're one firm. You don't want to be a collection of different operating systems. That's not going to be good for anyone. And then the other thing that I would share is in terms of lessons, it would also be a lesson for those thinking about being acquired is I mentioned that people are always on their best behavior when you're sitting around a boardroom table and talking numbers and, and, and there's the energy and excitement of that. People should remember that point. And they should remember that there are folks that do these sales jobs all day, every day is their job. And so if you're a seller, make sure you're not just talking to somebody like me who might do this a lot. Dig in deeper into the organization. Talk to their people. Talk to the folks that have done this before. And in reverse, if you're a buyer, you should do the same thing. You should have your people meet their people. You should yourself, if it's at all possible, you know, from a scale standpoint, meet other advisors. Now, there's a timing of this, right? Sometimes it's tough because things are confidential and when is the right time to bring the organization into the mix that you're considering something. I I realize there's all those delicacies and sensitivities, but again, take your time and go deeper and not just be two salespeople sitting at a table trying to sell each other on a vision. I think that's really important. That's extremely helpful. Let's change gears a little bit. There was a really flattering and I think very well done CityWire profile back in September about you and the growth of Buckingham. In that profile, you talk about the goal of getting to $100 billion in assets, which is a eye-popping number. It would be almost two times where you are right now as far as assets. What's your plan for getting there over what what period of time are you thinking? And really what's next for Buckingham? Yeah, actually, it's really funny. That $100 billion figure has actually been 
in Buckingham's history for a while. I remember when we hit $10 billion of collective assets, I said to our board, we need to prepare thinking about what this organization is going to look like at $100 billion. And folks were like, that's insane, right? I mean, <laughs> like, there's no independent firms that are $100 billion at the time. Now there actually are, if you think about it. Only a couple, but, but, but there are some independent firms that are. And I said, no, no, it's not insane. It's a question of not if, but when. And the logic that I have is organizations that grow at double-digit CAGRs should, you know, just assume it's 10%, right? They should double every seven years. And if their CAGR is, you know, a little bit lower, obviously the time frame expands, but if it's higher, it shrinks, of course, right? I mean, this is just math. We know what markets are going to do over time, right? Globally diversified 60-40 portfolios should, on average, grow 6% per year, not every year, and certainly rarely 6%, but on average over longer periods of time. We know that with effective execution, what you can grow organically, and then if you combine or add in inorganic growth, what that can look like. So for me, it was, I know what we've done. I know what I think we can do. So 10 billion becomes 20. That's one double. 20 becomes 40. That's another. 40 becomes 80. That's another. And then, you know, just a little bit more and you're at 100. And when you break things down that way, I just don't think they're so daunting. So, all right, we're north of $50 billion right now. That's one more double. So I know what markets in theory should do over the next, call it 10 years. I know what I hope we will grow organically uh, with good execution. And I know what now that we grow inorganically, what I hope we can do as well. So for me, it's just a math problem, which is unless there is some major macroeconomic deviation to where our industry goes, the way we provide our services, the way we charge for our services, it should not be unreasonable for us to double in the next decade, well within the next decade. I don't like to put specific years on it, but our mindset isn't actually a hundred billion these days. It's certainly much more because I personally plan to be around for a lot longer than the next seven years or 10 years. And I know that I want to leave a legacy for our organization where, again, it's an enterprise, it's sustainable beyond me, and that the next generation of leaders can continue a similar growth trajectory. And if that occurs, you're not talking about $100 billion, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions. And I don't think it's if, I, I just think it's when. So I, hopefully that doesn't come across in any way other than rooted in math and science and logic and evidence and, and not about greed or irrational ambition or false modesty kind of stuff. So or, or the opposite of that, I guess. But I think that that's what Buckingham will be. It's just a question of whether it will hit it in five years or seven years or 10 years based on how well we execute on two of those three growth you know, legs of the stool. Well said. I agree with you that the math problem does get pretty interesting as the numbers increase. One last question for you. If you were sharing with an advisor who's maybe they're at a bank or a wirehouse, um, they're in a captive environment and they were considering going independent, 
Um, what would be your, your advice to them? First of all, what I would say is I believe that just like I said, with respect to M&A, that we have this wonderful series of riches, you know, as it relates to optionality. And I think that is so wonderful. I have met so many folks that don't truly understand the path to independence. They don't understand how to do it. They don't understand the benefits that come with it. And I am one of these folks that chose to be part of this world on purpose because of all of those wonderful qualities that I see about it. So if I were talking to any human being, I would say, do it. The path to independence is one that is so rewarding, not just for you as a shareholder, as an advisor, but in terms of what you can provide your team members, what you can provide your clients, how you can ultimately have a vision for what you want to do and where you want to take all of those different elements and to make it a reality. So if you are one of these entrepreneurs, one of these visionaries that that desires to curate a best-in-class experience, a best-in-class kind of organization, then I just can't think of a better model than the independent model. But like we have been talking about, it takes understanding. It takes discovery. And I think, and again, you know, Lewis, we're talking about this and you all are so well set up for this, which is, I think it takes a steward to help people navigate all of this choice and to help them to understand what life can look like post-transition. And I think that whether they set up their own firm, whether they join an existing firm, I would really encourage finding a trusted steward to help shepherd you through that process. And again, those didn't exist decades ago, but they do today. And I think that they are well worth it. And it's a very smart move to enlist their help. Perfect. Couldn't have said it better myself. Adam, this has been extremely helpful and enlightening. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It was my absolute pleasure. It it just, it's been an honor. Thank you for inviting me on the podcast. And uh, I really hope it's helpful to your listeners. Even though Adam never saw himself as an entrepreneur, he certainly thinks like one. And that in and of itself is what often defines a successful leader. Yet it's his thought process around ensuring that M&A is not just a transaction, that people in relationships matter, which is the key to the success of growing enterprises like Buckingham. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management space without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. Lewis or I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or me by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com and Lewis by email at ldiamond at diamond-consultants.com. 
Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to AdvisorHub.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence. Independence.